going to save the greeting time till till the end. Give opportunity for um, us to switch out the nursery workers. Let me invite you to turn to Judges chapter 11. And as we turn there, you can come down a little bit. There you go. Uh, let me just remind you about a few things that you probably already know. We have our Faith Promise Missions Conference on December 7th and 8th. Saturday night, uh, we'll have a service with Dave Hamrick speaking, and then we'll have a fellowship to follow with some snacks and things. And then on Sunday, we have him for the whole day, and in the afternoon, we'll be reporting on our trip to the Ivory Coast as well, so I'd encourage you to be here for that. There are some sign-up sheets if you intend to come to the part where there's food. So, All right, and then there's a ladies' um, ornament exchange on December 10th at 7 p.m., and... Um, see, is there a sign up for that, or just they can just come? Okay, if you're a lady, you can come. Um, and then our Christmas program is December 15th, Sunday evening. Judges chapter 11. In Hebrews chapter 11, Jephthah is called a man of faith. So, what we know from that is that somehow Jephthah recognized his sin believed in the promise of God and trusted in His promised Redeemer. But as we've seen already, and as we're going to see again this week, Jephthah is a very troubled man. He was born the the son of a prostitute. He hangs out with thugs. and, And as we're going to see in the last part of chapter 11, he makes a rash promise and follows through on it. So let me read our text for tonight. Judges chapter 11, beginning with verse 30. This is the Word of God. Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will indeed give the sons of Ammon into my hand, then it shall be that whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the sons of Ammon, then it shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up as a burnt offering. So Jephthah crossed over to the sons of Ammon to fight against them, and the Lord gave them into his hand. He struck them with very great slaughter from Aurora to the entrance of Minith, twenty cities as far as Abel Keramim. So the sons of Ammon were subdued before the sons of Israel. When Jephthah came to his house at Mizpah, behold, his daughter was coming out to meet him with tambourines and with dancing. Now she was his one and only child. Besides her, he had no son or daughter. And when he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low, and you are among those who trouble me, for I have given my word to the Lord, and I cannot take it back. So she said to him, My father, you have given your word to the Lord. Do to me as you have said, since the Lord has avenged you of your enemies, the sons of Ammon. She said to her father, Let this thing be done for me. Let me alone two months, that I may go to the mountains and weep because of my virginity, I and my companions. Then he said, Go. So he sent her away for two months, and she left with her companions and wept on the mountains because of her virginity. At the end of two months, she returned to her father, who did to her according to the vow which he had made, and she had no relations with the man. 
Thus it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went yearly to commemorate the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileadite, four days in the year. Jephthah makes a rash promise. Jephthah makes a foolish promise in verses 30 through 33. And I think we have a clue from the text of why he makes this kind of promise. Jephthah is a man who wants to win. Remember from last week we saw that he was deserted by his half-brothers from his family. They, They sent him away. They didn't want to have any part with him because his mother was a prostitute. He was raised by his mom, and according to verse 3, he hung out with a bunch of thugs. And then, when his brothers are in a desperate state, they're apparently chiefs among the people of Israel, they start to see his value as a warrior. They see that he goes out and he wins when he fights, and so they call him back. So how bad would it look on Jephthah if Now, having been called back by his brothers, he loses. Right? He's trying to gain back their favor. And so, when they call him back, what does he do? First, he makes sure that his position as leader is secure. That's what we read about in verses 9 through 11. They offer him this position as chief of the people of Israel. And he says, well, I want to make sure that that is actually the case. And so, he basically takes a legal vow before them or has them take a vow before him and before God. The very second thing that he does after securing his position as leader, if he wins, he's the leader. The second thing that he does is he enters into negotiations with the Ammonites. He sends letters, messengers, to the king of the sons of Ammon. He he starts to get involved in some diplomacy. And the reason that he does this is because he wants to win. He has to win. Look at how the king responds in verse 28. After he gives this long explanation about why Israel should have the land that they have and why Ammon should not fight against them. Verse 28, But the king of of the sons of Ammon disregarded the message which Jephthah sent him. So that means that the diplomacy didn't work. The peace negotiations, they don't work. And so that means that there's only one thing left to do. It's time to fight. It's time to go to battle. And so Jephthah realizes his foe is great and that he very well can't do this on his own. And because he wants to win so badly, he makes a bargain with God in our passage. And while it might look like an act of devotion for Jephthah to call out to God and say, listen, if you will give me the sons of Ammon into my hands, then I will do this for you. It sounds like an act of devotion. We're going to see, I think, in the text that it actually expresses a lack of faith in God's power. Remember in verse 29, the Spirit of the Lord had already come upon him. The Spirit of the Lord coming upon these Old Testament leaders, these theocratic rulers, meant that they had the administrative ability to win these battles, to to, to make sense of what was going on and make wise choices. Jephthah had the Spirit of the Lord on him in that way. And yet he, he bargains with God in order to get the victory. So, let's look at the nature of Jephthah's promise in verse 31. The nature of his promise. Uh, 
verse 30, the end of the verse, if you will indeed give the sons of Ammon into my hand. So that's what God has to do for him. Here's what he will do for God. Verse 31. Then it shall be that whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the sons of Ammon, it shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up as a burnt offering. Now, it sounds like a harmless promise, right? He's just going to sacrifice an animal, the first animal that comes out of the door of his house, he's going to sacrifice and give it to God. But there are three clues in the text that tell us that he's offering more than just an animal. The first clue comes in verse 31 at the beginning of the verse. Then it shall be that whatever comes out. Now, when we hear the word whatever, we think uh, an animal, an object of some kind. But actually that word whatever could literally be translated whoever. And if we understand it in that way, which I think is a proper way to understand it, then it changes the way we think about what Jephthah is asking for. Let's read the first part again. Then it shall be that whoever comes out of the door of my house, I will offer him up as a sacrifice to you, as a burnt offering. So the first clue is is that word, whatever, which could be translated as whoever. The second clue uh, actually doesn't come from the text. It's more of an implied thing or understanding of the times. You, You have to remember that animals weren't used for pets in those days. And so you didn't have pets coming in and out of a house like we kind of think. We have a little doggy door in the front of our house and the animals come in. And, oh, if I, my dog comes out, then I'll have to sacrifice them. It didn't really work that way. Um, certainly they had a lot more livestock hanging around their houses, and so that very well could have been the case. But, but it, probably, it likely would not have been an animal that had come through the door. The third clue, I think, is our best evidence, and it's found in verse 35. Notice Jephthah's reaction when his daughter comes out the door. When he saw her, he tore his clothes, a sign of mourning, sadness, and he said, Alas, my daughter, you brought me very low, and you are among those who trouble me. I have given my word to the Lord, and I cannot take it back. So, if Jephthah only meant to offer an animal, why would he react this way in verse 35? Why would he not say, well, that's not what I that wasn't my promise. I didn't say whatever person. I I said whatever. And and I was referring to an animal. God knew I was referring to an animal, so you're you're excluded. But instead he recognizes that it was a person and it happens to be his daughter that comes out and he knows he has to follow through, or at least he thinks he does. And so I think what's happening here is Jephthah is making an over the top promise to God in order to get God to do something for him, to get that victory. That is, if I would have just offered an animal to God, he might not have allowed me to have the victory. So I'm going to go above and beyond that and offer the first human that comes out the doors of my house. Now, why would he think this way? I said that in Hebrews 11, he's referred to as a man of faith. And so... How could he, as a believer, think to offer a human sacrifice? I mean, any believer in their right mind knows that God would take no pleasure in the sacrifice of a human. But you have to keep in mind that Jephthah was raised by his mother, 
a prostitute, and he was out of touch with proper worship for much, much of his life. He grew up in a pagan culture and learned how to deal with pagan gods. You see, the pagans taught that their gods could be appeased with various gifts and sacrifices. And so the greater thing that you needed from that god, the greater sacrifice you had to give to them. And so Jephthah, I think, put God on the similar plane to the pagan gods that he had been brought up worshiping. And he thought that God would be pleased if he offered a greater sacrifice than an animal. Now notice the the nature of Jephthah's sacrifice. Notice what he says about this human sacrifice that he's going to offer. He says two things in verse 31. At the end of the verse it says, whatever comes out of the door of my house, when I return, it shall be the Lord's. There's the first thing. And the second is, and I will offer it up as a burnt offering. Okay, so I'm going to set apart whatever it is that walks through the doors of my house and I'm going to set apart or consecrate it to the Lord. And then notice the next word in verse 31, and I will offer it up as a burnt offering. He doesn't say or. He doesn't say, I will offer it, I I will set it apart for the purposes of God. I will uh, give it to God, consecrate to Him, or I will offer it as a burnt offering. He says, and. Now, there are many who interpret this passage differently than I, but that word and has to be carefully considered. He is saying that he's going to offer up whatever comes out of the doors of his house, whoever comes out of the doors of his house. He's going to consecrate that person and he's going to offer that person as a burnt offering. So, what about this burnt offering? What is a burnt offering? Well, we've studied Leviticus, so you have a general idea of what a burnt offering is. A burnt offering in the Scripture is always referring to the death of a victim. It's the same phrase used in Genesis 22:2 when God tells Abraham to offer Isaac as a burnt offering. Now, did that mean that Isaac was simply going to be consecrated for the purpose of the Lord and not be killed? No, it meant that Isaac was going to be killed. At least that was that was the initial impression that Abraham, he had no idea. In fact, Hebrews 11 tells us that he thought God was going to raise Isaac from the dead. So when it's talking about Isaac with regard to a burnt offering, it means a human sacrifice. That's the same thing that's being talked about here. A burnt offering. The fact that whoever comes through the door of the house will be consecrated to the Lord and will be a burnt offering offered up as a human sacrifice. This is what Jephthah is saying. Now, if Jephthah only had in mind the consecration part, the dedicating of this person, then he likely would have used language like Hannah used in 1 Samuel 1 when she sets apart Samuel and 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 uh, promises that she's going to to um, to, to do the ha- the Nazarite vow upon him instead of instead of saying I'm going to offer this child of mine Samuel as a burnt offering she says I'm going to set him apart I'm going to consecrate him I'm going to make a vow to you that his hair will never be cut and so on now you might be thinking no person especially a Jew would ever sacrifice his son 
on a whim, like Jephthah's doing. Just in order to get a victory? Are you kidding? But consider Manasseh. King Manasseh in 2 Kings 21.6. Who, the text says, made his son pass through the fire. That's not talking about walking on hot coals. That's talking about offering his son up to the false god Molech, which was an iron god, was in the middle of the fire, and they would put the live babies on his hands and the baby would die. Okay. There are kings, even of Israel, who would be willing to offer up a human sacrifice. Solomon, at the end of his life, apparently did this as well with his sons. So, Jephthah is very serious about what he wants to have happen. He wants to win this victory. And he knows that he needs to, well, at least in his mind, he thinks he needs to offer God something of great value, more than an animal, and so he says, I'll be willing to offer a human as a burnt offering. Well, we know what happens. Verses 32 to 33, we find that God gives Jephthah the victory. And so, if Jephthah is serious about his promise to God, God's already followed through on his end of the bargain. Jephthah needs to follow through on his. Because he promised that the very first person that comes out of the doors of his house, when he comes back in peace from defeating the sons of Ammon, they would be offered up as a burnt offering. In verses 34-40, through we see that Jephthah feels obligated to keep his promise. Jephthah feels obligated to keep his promise. And if we didn't know what happened next, we would call this, we were learning about this story for the first time, we would call this a shocking twist. When he comes back, verse 34 tells us that his daughter was there to to celebrate the victory. And who comes to the door first? Excited about his return. Looking forward to seeing Daddy. And she comes out. And the text makes very clear, verse 34, that, that this was his only child. Look at the end of verse 34. Now she was his one and only child. Besides her, he had no son or daughter. Whenever you see repetition like that in the Scripture, trying to make a point, and here it is, there is no other. This is it. She is it. If his family line is going to continue, it has to continue through her and her alone. Besides her, there is no son or daughter. And notice his response when she walks through the door again in verse 35. When he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low, and you are among those who trouble me, for I have given my word to the Lord, and I cannot take it back. Now, Jephthah was right about one thing, and that is that God takes vows very seriously. We saw this in Leviticus when we looked at the, the consequences for not following through on a vow that's made to God. So God is serious about vows. But for Jephthah to follow through on a vow that would cause him to sin was foolish. I think that Jephthah was so inculturated with the pagans that he lumped God into the same category in a moment of weakness. With the false gods, what would happen if he didn't follow through on his end of the bargain? What would he expect? That the false gods would come back and, and, and bring revenge upon him. They would bring about their anger upon him. And so he lumps God into that same category as if God is not merciful. 
And if he didn't follow through on this rash promise that he had made to God that he would kill whoever came through the door, then God would make his life miserable. And so he feels obligated to follow through on this foolish, sinful promise. The daughter's request is seen in verses 36 through 38. His daughter finds out about his promise and surprisingly agrees to it. My father, you have given your word to the Lord. Do to me as you have said, since the Lord has avenged you of your enemies, the sons of Ammon. But before he follows through, she asks for one request. In verses 37 and 38, she asks for one request. And that request is to go up to the mountains for two months and grieve for her virginity. Now, there are many who argue that Jephthah doesn't offer her as a burnt offering, but only that he does that first thing. He consecrates her to the Lord. He sets her apart for God's purposes. And so what they argue is the way that Jephthah sets her apart, consecrates her, is by making her a perpetual virgin. That is, a virgin for the remainder of her life. And that she is given in service to the temple. And so here's the... Here's the promise that he made. I'm going to give her in consecration and the way that I'm going to do it is I'm not going to have a family line come through her. She's going to be a virgin forever and she's going to have to serve in the, in the temple. You know what that sounds a lot like? It sounds like a modern nun, doesn't it? That a, a person would not be given to marriage, a woman would not be given to marriage and would serve the temple for the remainder of her life. Now, there is no indication in Scripture that that sort of position ever existed. Even the prophetesses in the Old Testament were married, like Deborah and Isaiah's wife. Obviously married. We don't know her name, but she was married as well. And so these women that would serve in these sorts of functions were married. And so these people who argue for that sort of thing, I think are are kind of bringing along in some, some revisionistic history. So that's not what's going on here. She's not being put to, uh, made to be a perpetual virgin and to serve the temple. That's not what he's doing. We already saw earlier that he intended both to consecrate her, give her to the Lord, verse 31, and to do what? Offer her as a burnt offering. But we see here in verse 37 that she asked for a two-month delay. Now, if it were the case that we were that she was going to be consecrated and given to perpetual virginity to work in the temple, if that were the case, why in the world would she ask for a two-month delay? Would she not be grieving for the rest of her life? Would she not already be given over to perpetual virginity before the two months? Instead, the offering that he makes happens in verse 39 and it happens after the two-month delay. So it makes no sense to me that he would delay to make her a perpetual virgin. The point is, she was not being confined to perpetual virginity, but that she was on a path to be slaughtered by her own father. And so we read in verse 39, at the end of the two months, she returned to her father who did to her according to the vow which she had made and she had no relations with the man. At the end of two months, she returns and he did according to the vow. What was the vow? I will give her, consecrate her for the purposes of God and I will offer her as a burnt offering. 
So he did to her according to what he had vowed. And the text shows that this will not bring about any... uh, it, It will end the family line for Jephthah because she had no relations with a man. The only thing worse than making a sinful vow, the only thing worse than making a rash promise is keeping it. Remember the foolish vow that Saul made while Israel was in battle? If anyone eats anything today, that person is going to be killed. But someone ate, didn't they? Not knowing that King Saul had made that vow. And who was it? It was Jonathan, his son. And yet, Saul wisely did not follow through on that foolish vow. He was convinced by other people, and I think by Jonathan himself, not to follow through on that. But Jephthah is not so wise. He makes a rash promise, and he follows through on it. Verse 40 tells us that there's a commemoration that's made. Commemoration that's made that once a year, four days a year, Israel would commemorate the daughter of Jephthah. Now again, I think this gives further proof to what I think is going on, that she is slaughtered. Because if she were confined to perpetual virginity, why would they have an ongoing memorial for that? It seems clear to me that they would have a memorial for the death of a person, for the sacrifice that took place. I recognize that there are some who might disagree with my interpretation of the text, and I have to admit that I I struggled to come down on one side as I evaluated both of them. The greatest support for the first idea that Jephthah did not kill her, that he only consecrated her, comes from, I think, Hebrews 11, that Jephthah was a man of faith. So we need to keep that in mind as we're looking at the text. But I would suggest to you that if you examine the text as we have done tonight, the evidence in the text itself seems clear that he killed her. If you want to use Hebrews 11 as your silver bullet argument for denying the murder of his daughter, then you need to consider some of the other people who are listed in Hebrews 11, like Rahab and like Samson. Little redeeming value in both of these people who are called people of faith, who are believers. Little redeeming value in a person like Lot, who Peter calls a righteous man. And so if you think it's so far-fetched for someone like Jephthah, a believer, to do something like this, you just have to look at a few other examples in the Scriptures and see that there are many believers who did some pretty wicked things. What we learned from that is that even people of faith fall into wicked sin. And Jephthah, I think, is a prime example of that. So, let me just leave you with two points of application very simple tonight. Number one, don't make bad promises. Don't make bad promises. Number two, don't keep a bad promise that you've made. Don't make bad promises and don't keep a bad promise that you've made. Now, we need to understand what constitutes a bad promise because some of you might be thinking, wow, i got all sorts of promises I want to get out of and I'll just call it a bad promise and I'll get out of it. A bad promise, I would say, is a covenant that's made to God that will guarantee your future sins. 
covenant that's made to God that will guarantee your future sin. For example, this vow by Jephthah. In order for him to follow through on his vow, he would have to sin against God by murdering his daughter. Do you think God gets some kind of sadistic pleasure with people who make bad promises that lead to sin when they follow through on them as if keeping a promise is the most important thing to Him? Let me give you an example that may, may help. Suppose a professing Christian promised in a church service before God that he was going to murder an abortion doctor. What do you think God would rather have that person do? Follow through on his promise and murder the doctor or break the promise and not murder him? Option one or option two? Option two, hopefully you all agree, right? Only thing worse than making a bad promise is keeping it. How about a professing Christian who promised his boss that he would fudge some numbers for him so that the company could look better to the client? What do you think God would rather have that person do? Cheat the client or break the promise? See, God's not interested in us making promises that will lead to our sin, that will cause our sin, that will require our sin. That's what happened with Jephthah. So, a bad promise is a covenant made before God that will guarantee, require our sin. A bad promise, however, is not something that causes us discomfort and only may bring about our sin. Or a bad promise is not something that that we would just like to get out of. Do you remember the Pharisees who would designate their money in Mark chapter 7 as Corbin? The idea was they set it aside for God's purposes. And so Jesus said, well, what about your parents? Well, we can't. We can't help our parents. We've already set, our side, we've already set aside our money as Corbin, as set aside for God's purposes. So we're sorry we can't help our parents. And Jesus says, you missed the point. With all your rules and regulations and your promises, you fail to obey the commandment to honor your parents. And that was his point. You are foolish and wicked to make promises about your money in order that you can't help your parents. And so here's what Jesus was saying. Break your promise in order to help your parents. First of all, stop getting yourself into that by setting aside money. That's the ideal situation. Don't make that foolish promise. But then, now that you've done that, do what is right. Don't follow through on a promise that will require your sin. So, a bad promise does not include getting married to someone whom you no longer love. You might be thinking, well, I have all sorts of sinful attitudes and ones that I never had when I was single. And so, maybe it would be better off if I broke that promise to my spouse and got a divorce. Can I just give you a word of exhortation? Your marriage is not the cause of your sin. Your marriage is not the cause of your sin. Rather, your marriage is only a revealer of your sin. It's only a revealer of who you really are. It's like a person who's trying to sell a car. And they make up an ad for it and they put it in the papers and on Craigslist. And they say they've never had any problems with this car. Since the time that they bought it, They've never had any problems. And so you come to try out the car 
and you turn it on and you hear knocking from the engine. Oil you see is leaking and smoke is coming from the engine. And you say, what are you talking about? You've never had any problems. Look at this thing. It's a piece of junk. And the seller says, well, that's not... That's not my problem. You're the one who turned on the car. Your turning on the car caused the problem. But the truth is that the problem had always been there. And the turning on the car was only a revealer of the problem. It only showed what was ultimately in the engine or wasn't in the engine. And so... I say to you that if you get out of your marriage, I can guarantee you that the sin that resides in your heart will follow you. Oh, it may be suppressed for a while. Things may look great. Your problems may seem very few few for a while, like that car that's turned back off. But once your heart is put under the right circumstances, once it's put under pressure like it is in marriage or maybe some other relationships, Your sin will come to the surface. Your marriage is not the cause of your problems. It is only a revealer of it. And so the solution is not to back out on your promise. Even if you thought at the time it was a bad promise that you made, I shouldn't have married this person. The solution is not divorce. The solution is not separation or hoping that your spouse dies, but it is to mend your marriage. It is to learn to love your spouse like Christ loves you. It is to put your spouse's desires over your desires. It is to consider him or her as more important than yourself. And to pray for help all along the way. Now, let me be clear. God is very serious about vows that we make. And He says multiple times in the Scriptures that it is better not to make a vow and fail to keep it than to... to Uh, It's better not to make a vow at all than to make one and fail to keep it. See, God is so serious about our making of vows that He would rather have us not make them. The thing that God is most serious about is doing what is right. Sin's entry into this world has made our world extremely complex. Breaking a promise is sinful, And sometimes, so is keeping one. And so we need the Spirit of God to give us wisdom and to guide us so that we don't make rash promises to begin with and that we follow through on the good promises that we we do make. The only thing that's worse than making a bad promise is keeping one. You know, Christ died to free us from the power of sin. And Christ died to free us from the curse of sin. And we can be freed from the power of sin now. That's what we sang about earlier. Sin no longer has a grip on me. It doesn't have the same grip as it had before. It's not our master. We don't have to obey it. But we won't be freed from the curse of sin until Jesus comes. And that day, all of these challenges, all of these conflicts that we have because of the promises that we made, they'll they'll all go away. Because we will be made anew. We will have our glorified bodies. We'll be able to worship God as He deserves. Let's pray. Father, I 
thank you for your grace as we studied a little bit of, of a difficult text, um, some technical items that we had to go through in order to see the point of the text. And Lord, I pray that you would help us at the very least to understand that your word is true and that the application of your word is, is helpful for our growth in godliness. And Lord, I pray that we would be people of our word, that our yes would be yes and our no would be no. We wouldn't have to add on taglines to our promises or to our, to our word. When we give somebody our word, that we follow through on it. Lord, we, we pray that you would help us to follow through on the promises that we already have made, particularly with regard to our marriages. Help us to, to grow in our relationship within our, our family. We want, to, we want to express the picture of Christ's love for His church and of the church's love for Christ in our marriage. So help us to honor that picture by growing in love for our spouse. Help us, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you turn to Him, 300?